We're going to begin our time in prayer, turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And uh, a few things. Does everyone have an outline this morning? You're set, you're ready to go, go you're, you're equipped for the morning at hand, if it, as you were? Okay. Perfect. Galatians 4 is where we'll be. You know, I, I, I love the, obviously we love all of God's word, but I appreciate the candor and transparency as we've been working through the weeks. Um, different people have divulged, you, you know, Wade, my, I, it, if I had to rank books or favorite in terms of which I really kind of go back to and resonates and has stuck with me. You know, Galatians is not on the, t- on the list. And I think a lot of people maybe get lost in kind of the, the flow of thought, the logic, the argumentation. And it's just like, what did I just read? So I think I want to encourage you. I think I've been encouraged to see I've not really spent a lot of time in Galatians. Some, some individuals have said. So it's good, right, to revel in the grace of God that we have been justified as sinners, made right with our God, not based on our works, right? That is a glorious glorious message and that's worship inducing and which is what we want to do and why we're here this morning amen so if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes let's pray and ask the Lord's help yet again we took one week pause and now we're back in the book of Galatians father we thank you so much for this morning we are undeserving we quickly express Lord, we have nothing in us that could ever merit the the righteousness that belongs to you, the righteousness that is required to stand in your presence and have a relationship with you and call you Father. Lord, that is a work that you have accomplished and you have wrought in our hearts in planting faith and in planting your spirit. We are grateful for this miracle. And indeed, it is a miracle, this miracle of salvation, that you would cause dead sinners to be made alive in Christ. To this we say thank you. Lord, we also pray that this morning would be rich unto you, that you would use it to render you the praise that you rightfully deserve, that you would use the morning to exalt your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we spend time in Hebrews and now even in in advance to prime the pump, as it were, uh, to spend time in the book of Galatians. Help us to yet again be mindful of your grace extended to us. Also being cognizant of of the change, the ongoing transformation that it is to bring about in our lives. Uh, Lord, we ask for wisdom and insight. Father, help us to understand these things. But even in that space of understanding, not just on a theological plane, but we would pray pray that you would open our eyes to see the the glorious life-altering implications of what we're seeing and what we're understanding. Uh, we pray for our pastor in advance and for the music team the next hour. We pray that you would fill them with power and conviction as they lead, clarity of speech, and may your word be rightly divided. We, we want to cling to that high view of you and a high view of your word, and we want that even exemplified even now in these minutes in front of us. And we pray this now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you don't have an outline, I think Drew's around somewhere kind of disseminating them out. Uh, Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Uh, Paul is, just to remind you, we have taken a break, so it's helpful to kind of re-engage. Paul is continuing his efforts to do what? What is Paul doing in Galatians? You, You tell me. You've been here the last 
couple months. Okay, Christ is greater than Moses, a message both in Hebrews, but most assuredly coming out in some form in the book of Galatians. He's setting them straight. Excellent. And what needs to be straightened out? Freedom, okay. They are gravitating back towards that slavery that they once knew of being in bondage under the law, right? Who was in the process of deceiving them and steering them in that direction? It was a group called the Judaizers, right? And so Paul is continuing his efforts to rescue the Galatians from the false gospel of the Judaizers. And he now in chapter four, he's taking three different approaches. All three approaches have been aimed at convincing the Galatians that you do not need legalism in order to live the Christian life. Let's just remind ourselves of what we covered. Look back at verses one through seven. He explains to them their adoption of which they needed to be reminded of anew just as we do, amen? The main idea, if you could have put that in one sentence, is God's children make spiritual progress when they realize the wonder of their adoption in Christ. Look at verse one of chapter four, reading from the New American Standard. It says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. That should elicit gratitude. Born of a woman, of which we celebrate at Christmas, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive. And what does it say there in verse four, verse five rather? We receive the adoption. Thank you, thank you. Uh, adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God's children make spiritual progress when they realize the wonder of their adoption in Christ. Now friends, I, I say make spiritual progress, and we all want to do that, right? We all want to grow. We all want to um, excel still more in our Christian life. I say make spiritual progress because that's exactly what the back half of Galatians represents. You'll remember chapters one through three, classic Paul, right? This is who you are in Christ, right? And this is how who you became who you are in Christ. And here's a secret. It most assuredly was not by your own efforts, right? It was by the grace of God. You are who you are in Christ because God's grace was extended to you through his son. Now in chapters four through six, Paul is saying, here's how who you are should affect how you live, right? This is how who you are should affect how you live. So God's children make spiritual progress and he's, he's giving them approach after approach, reminder after reminder to help them do just that. That's really what we're gonna cover over the next many weeks, right? Chapters four through six. We want to, I'm, I'm reveling in the grace of God. I'm secure in how I've made right with my, 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 my creator. It's by grace alone. Now I want to live unto his praise for he is worthy, right? Chapters four through six has so much instruction for us in that space. 
You move your way further in verses 8 through 11. Not only does Paul explain their adoption, but he laments something. He laments the regression, right? They were going backwards was the reality of things. And, and why were they growing backwards? Um, why do we often, why do, why do individuals often slide and slip and take a step back here and there? Can you think of what happens when that occurs? Probably really more what's not happening. Excellent. Do you think that they're, that they're remembering everything that they should when you're moving backwards? We are forgetful creatures, right? Which is why, right, Paul, Peter, there's no trouble for me to write these things to you, right? Um, why? Because you need, you need reminders. And that's true for them. And it's true for us as well. These individuals were going backwards and Paul needs to remind them of a few things. So that leads us to verse eight to 11. God's children make spiritual progress when you remain mindful of your permanent freedom in Christ. Look at verse eight. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. God's children make spiritual progress when they remain mindful of their permanent freedom in Christ. And friends, by listening to the deception of the Judaizers, these individuals were failing to remain mindful of this freedom, right? Thus, they were going backwards. That moves us forward to now verse 12 through 20, which we will cover now, right? Not only does he explain their adoption, he laments the regression. Now he seeks their affection in verses 12 through 20. Let me read that and we'll explain what, what that means. Verses 12 through 20. I beg of you, brethren, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So I, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. It's not his first time to say he's bewildered. He's befuddled at what the Galatians were doing. Paul seeks their affection. And what do we mean by this? Well, what we mean is that Paul's voice really changes here as you kind of go back and read it. And the reason we read 1 through 11 is just to remind ourselves. We took some, some gaps, some pauses in that space. 
his voice changes a bit. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a different tone here at this juncture that Paul takes up. And this variation begins here in verse 12 of our passage. Since the middle of really chapter 2, Paul has been engaged in, you'll, re, you'll remember, this theological argumentation in his efforts, right, to reclaim the gospel of grace, right? To reclaim the Galatian churches for the gospel, bringing them back to grace. And his tactics have been relentless, right? He's been shooting barrage of of theological argument after theological argument over the bow, and he spouts off valid point after valid point as all an attempt to clarify the gospel. It is the gospel of grace and not of works. And you get the sneaky impression that this isn't Paul's first rodeo here, is it? He, he doesn't really, even at this moment, he doesn't even take a breath. He doesn't allow the Judaizers' room to open their mouths, right? Thus far, he cited the Old Testament expansively to show how the gospel that was preached to the Galatian churches was the truth. And not only that, he has cited a, basically a dozen Old Testament texts. And by doing so, he's employed even the Exodus narrative to characterize the nature of the freedom that the gospel of Christ brings to them and has brought to them. You'll remember, and we've covered this, Israel was imprisoned by the law. It was enslaved to it. It was under its curse. And likewise, the Gentiles were imprisoned under vain philosophies of men. And so you have both Jews and both Gentiles, they were imprisoned by Paul says, elemental principles of the world. Thankfully, Paul says, thanks be to God, right? Which is throughout all of his epistles, right? Thankfully, Jesus Christ came. He delivered us from the curse of the law so that we might what? We might enjoy the freedom of life in the spirit. God freed them. And God has freed us. And he's done this not by their works of obedience, by the but by the obedience of someone else, right? Jesus Christ, we celebrate Christmas, his incarnation, born of a woman under the law, right? You know this in Romans 8, what the law was, was not able to do, weak as though it was in the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of human flesh and as an offering of sin, right? He redeemed us, he saved us. <clears throat> Salvation and justification were by faith not by works. At this stage in Paul's letter, we find a, a, really a brief respite from Paul's theological argumentation. Because here at this juncture, Paul clears his throat, he takes a deep breath, and he gets rather personal and pastoral, which you could tell that from what we just read. Paul was their spiritual father, after all. He loved them, and they loved him. But now Paul is puzzled, he's perplexed. Why? It's because as, it's as if he has become their enemy. And why is that? Paul, it, it feels, it, he senses that he's become like an enemy to them because the Judaizers had come in and stolen their affection and this had absolutely crushed Paul. And so he turns from really lashing them with these theological arguments to correct them, in love of course, to now wanting to embrace them again in his arms. Your main idea of this passage, and we'll unpack it now, for it's, it's somewhat lengthy, lengthy compared to the others. God's children make spiritual progress 
when the posture of the heart is to make much of Christ. Let me say that again. God's children make spiritual progress when the posture of the heart is to make much of Christ. And friends, making much of Christ was Paul's anthem, was it not? You'll remember Galatians 2.20. Look back there for a moment. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is consumed with making much of Christ. And he knows that if these believers are to continue to make spiritual progress themselves, they too need to be obsessed with the task of making much of Christ. And that was the opposite of what was happening in their lives at this moment. Now, making much of Christ entails several things, but we'll cover four that we see in today's text. Four essentials to a life that makes much of Christ. Look at verse 12. First thing that we note, it entails living in a way that draws attention to the gospel. Living in a way that draws attention to the gospel. Paul says, I beg of you, brethren, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. It's a bit clumsy to us in our English, right? What is Paul saying? Live in a way that makes the gospel stand out. And how does someone do that? How do you live in a way that makes the gospel stand out? You do so by leaving the bondage that you had to the law and becoming as Paul was, right? One who was free in Christ. Become, I have become as you are, right? You and I draw attention to the gospel by living in proper relationship to the law. We make the gospel stand out when we refuse to adhere to a life that belittles the work of Christ on the cross. Now, how do we belittle the work of Christ on the cross? Let me ask this again. How does legalism belittle the work of Christ on the cross? Asking you. I think we're all saying the same thing, right? It, it, is, it is proclaiming in that moment as we adhere to a legalistic form that Christ's work, right, was not enough. It's insufficient. And, and when in so doing, what are you doing? You are belittling Christ and his work on the cross. We make the gospel stand out when we refuse to adhere to a life of legalism. That's exactly what a religion of works and self-righteousness does. It belittles Christ. It makes much of who? It makes much of self. You see, when Paul calls upon the Galatians to become like him, he's not saying that they should imitate his personality or imitate his dress. No, in the overall context, he entreats the Galatians to become as he is in their relationship to the law, Right? It was a terrible irony to Paul that he, just follow the logic, he, a Jew, had become like a Gentile, right? He ate with them. He, en he enjoyed their company. He became like a Gentile in order to win Gentile Galatians. And what were they doing? These Gentile individuals were now trying to become as Jews, right? They were trying to become Jews in order to win God's favor. And Paul says, what are you doing what are you doing? We know from 1 Corinthians 9 
that Paul was willing, and he exemplified this in his life, in his ministry. He, he ate with them, he consumed their food, which would have been a big problem in a Jewish context. A Jew dining with Gentiles, observing, not observing those dietary laws that were on top of them. Paul was willing to adapt to whatever context he found himself, whether it be Jews, whether it be Gentiles, and he did so why? He did so for the sake of the gospel, right? He literally became as they are, which was a really big deal for someone who was probably enmeshed more tightly in Jewish legalism than anyone else in his day. You'll remember Philippians, right? This is Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day as to the law. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I literally persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which in the law, I was found blameless, right? Philippians 3, 5. This is this Paul. And yet what we know from 1 Corinthians 9, that same Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, zeal, persecuting the church, blameless, as Paul says. What does 1 Corinthians 9, 20 says? It says, I became all things to all men. Why? That I might by all means save some, right? I threw my life in the midst of those who did not adhere to my Jewish law. Why? Because they needed to hear the gospel of which was available to them and not just Jews only. So Paul reminds the Galatians of verse 12 that the very fact that he did not depend upon his Jewish distinctive should make them forsake the Judaizers. Why do you, I've exemplified, this is not the example I left you. Why are you being deceived by these Judaizers? Become as I am, which was what? Free in Christ, for that is what you are. That's the main point. Be free like me. Paul has already said in Galatians 2.19, if you'll turn back, he says, I died to the law that I might live to God. Later in Galatians 5.1, really the verse over the whole book, right? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. God's grace has given you spiritual freedom. Why are you then allowing the Judaizers to come and seduce you into doubting and forsaking this freedom? Why? I would encourage you this morning to even pause and think about your own life. Is my life making much of Christ? Is my life marked by this freedom of reveling in the grace of God, not to the point of licentiousness, right? We do not go on sinning that grace may abound, not to that. We're not antinomian, right? The law has a purpose. We want to honor Christ. He's revealed his will to us of what is excellent, true, and right. And out of our love for him, we, had, we, we do those things, not to merit our salvation, but to give him honor and glory. Is your life making much of Christ? Are you living in a way that draws attention to the gospel? Do people look up and say, uh, you know, there, go, there goes Mike, right? He's literally doing cartwheels down 407. He is so consumed with the grace of God. I would not encourage you to do cartwheels down 407, but you get the gist. Filled with joy, exuberance, gratitude. Why? It's because we're rejoicing in God's grace. We realize what it is to be set free from bondage and enslavement. 
Do people walk into North Lake Bible Church and say, this this is a group of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a a sense of freedom in this place, right? Um, Of of people who have been, the shackles have been broken. They're not gripped by a cold, apathetic legalism, right? Right? of trying to merit the favor of God. You know that culture of what it looks like. No, these are people that says, I, I have nothing to contribute. <laughs> this is a salvation that is holy and solely the work of God. And everything that you're here uh, observing this morning, singing of songs and placing ourselves joyfully under his word is us reveling in the fact that God's work is sufficient on our behalf and we're grateful. Is that the testimony of this church when people walk in? I would say that it is. And I pray that that would continue, yes? Do we live in a way that draws attention to the gospel? Paul most assuredly did. Making much of Christ requires living in a way that draws attention to this message of grace. Number two, making much of Christ entails receiving God's word and his messenger with the utmost joy and openness. Receiving God's word and his messenger with the utmost joy and openness. Look at the end of verse 12 which really leads into verse 13, you have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, or or literally the word there is to count worthless, to loathe is to spit upon. It was not your reaction, but what? What did they do instead? They received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Let's unpack that for a moment. Not only had they done him no wrong, but they had done what? They had openly and lovingly received him. Let's be honest for a moment. At at the moment, Paul wasn't exactly in tip-top shape to be warmly received. Why is that the case? He's not in tip-top shape to be warmly received because of his condition when he came to them. And this leaves Paul asking, how, how then, based on my condition before, and you received me with such a warm embrace, how then could you reject me now after so warmly accepting me and receiving me then? What gives? Again, I am perplexed by you. We know from the book of Acts that when Paul first went to Galatia, that many Jews turned against him. And they turned against him when they realized his message was as much for Gentiles as for Jews. And they didn't like that. We even know from Acts 14 that the persecution was obviously so severe that Paul at one point had been stoned and left for dead by those who were hostile to the gospel. But there was this sweet group in Galatia, a group of people who received him warmly. A people who had accepted his message with what? Joy. And openness, despite, mind you, the serious physical affliction that Paul had at that time. You see, in God's providence, Paul not only became sick, but this illness is what actually led to his being able to preach the gospel to them. God parked him in Galatia, wounded, afflicted, sick. And on his first missionary journey, Paul had either become seriously ill, forcing him to stay there, Or he went to Galatia in order to recuperate. Either way, he was not in in sound shape, okay? And and regardless of the case, I think the takeaway there is that God is sovereign, right? God wanted Paul in Galatia in that season, and he wanted him there in this form. 
not at his best, not 100%, but beaten, broken, sick, and afflicted. Our sanctified imaginations is right to possibly ask, what's the bodily illness that paved the way for Paul to go to Galatia? The truth is we, we don't re- really know definitively, but we can look at context, right? Which is paramount. You see, judging by the rest of this passage where Paul says that they are, literally there's this interesting phrase that they were literally willing to pluck out their eyes and give them to him, exchange their eyes with him. And because of that, many people have actually deduced that Paul's bodily affliction affliction was some form of eye disease. Now, if you're familiar with malaria, right? Malaria, untreated, can affect eyesight, right? The optic nerve, right? And if he had contracted malaria in the swampy region of Panphilia, as some suggest, again, we don't know, but we look at context. We know that malaria sometimes affects a person's ability to see. And this theory of poor eyesight is only further substantiated as you move further in chapter 6. Look at verse 11. The closing section of this letter which begins, See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Large letters. Friends, if Paul had limited vision, it would, it would likely have used, he would have likely used larger letters, right? In order to see what he was writing. These are all possibilities. We also know in verse 14 that Paul's affliction may have not only affected the way that he saw, but also the way that he looked as well, right? Eye disease, friends, was common in ancient times. And in those days, without the benefit of what you and I enjoy, right? Common medicines, sterile bandages, and other modern care, diseases were often disfiguring. The stench was nauseating. But you see how that didn't make any difference to the church in Galatia. If that was Paul's state, regardless, he was afflicted. He, he was not 100%. It didn't matter to them. It was not in the least bit a barrier to Paul's credibility. They received him as God's messenger with joy and openness. As in, even a phrase here, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. That's pretty lofty language, right? As an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. That is how warmly they received him. They didn't question the way he looked. They didn't question his physical form, the shape that he was in. He, they didn't even begrudge maybe the, 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 the tender care that he required in order to recuperate from his ailments. Didn't matter to them. They didn't despise or loathe him. As repulsive as he may have been, they had no doubt that he was God's messenger. And that was all that mattered. He was the apostolic representative of Christ himself, And so they received him with joy. They were grateful beyond measure for the blessing of spiritual life that he received because of his ministry and the message of the gospel that he brought. We know also from Acts 13, 48, that after his second message, the Gentiles there in Galatia began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. It's another way to say that they received it with joy and openness. But now he asks them in verse 15, That's how you received me then. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had, that sense of satisfaction and happiness? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Friends, whatever the specific nature of Paul's illness, his primary point is clear. 
The Galatians had loved him with a love that would have compelled them to make any sacrifice for the apostle. And this was not lost on Paul. He says, I, I read report of you and, and I don't sense the same degree of, of blessing, the same degree of satisfaction. There's, someone has, as we've already noted, someone's bewitched you. Someone's been whispering in your ear. You don't have that same sense of warmth and reception to the same gospel that I brought to you. What gives? Something's radically changed. And so Paul asked them in his bewilderment, he asked them a really kind of pointed, painful question. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? You once received me as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus himself. Now I'm more relegated to the status of enemy because my message is contrary to the message that you're currently listening to and being deceived by. Friends, the implication is that by Paul's second missionary journey and trip to Galatia, some within the church had already come under the influence of the Judaizers. They had already begun to doubt the truth of salvation that it's by faith alone, which they had learned, which they had accepted from the apostle. And the gospel of legalism had become more attractive to these people than the gospel of grace. Paul was perplexed, to say the least. He's crushed by this deception and the ease in which they were deceived. This man who had been their beloved friend who now had become like an enemy because his message was contrary to the one that they were now embracing. Paul says, what made you lose that initial satisfaction? Why have you turned against me and against the gospel of grace? Now, it's safe to say that Paul is heartbroken here at this juncture, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a powerful rhetorical question there. Have I become like an enemy to you for telling you the truth? That was the reality of things. That grieved the heart of Paul, right? Now, Paul's heart was not the only one grieved, was it? Who else's heart is grieved when people met, abandon grace and take up legalism? What's that? God. God himself, right? If God's servant grieves over the defection of God's people, I think it's fair to say how much more does God grieve over the defection of his people? When people abandon the gift of truth and scorn the wonder of his care and his grace, it grieves the heart of God. We can just look at the whole of the Old Testament and we see this, right? God's heart was grieved a lot. You look at the book of Hosea. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet what Paul, God is saying there, yet it is I who gave birth to Israel. I made them a people. I taught her to walk. I bandaged her wounds. I taken care of her in my arms to comfort her. And now these people had turned their back to me. They've gone their own way. If you look at Hosea 6.4, even there God asked in this dismay, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew that goes away early. What's he saying there by that imagery? What's true about a morning cloud and dew in the morning? It's fleeting. It's there and then it's gone. And God says, your loyalty is just like that. 
what should I do with you? Israel, and you know this from your Old Testament, was notorious for turning their back on God and listening to the false misleading voices of men. This was a measure, really, friends, of Paul's grief, even in the book of Galatians. He had a similar grief. These people who had once made much of Christ through the reception of God's gospel now were acquiescing to those who were in the business of making much of themselves, which is what the Judaizers were doing. This leads us to the third essential of making much of Christ. Not only, well, number three, resisting the influence of those who make much of themselves. Resisting the influence of those who make much of themselves. We live in a way that draws attention to the gospel. We receive God's word and messenger with the utmost joy and openness. But we also resist the influence of those who make much of themselves. Look at verse 17. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Meaning, they make much of you, they dote on you, they court you, which is literally the cultural connotation of this word seek, right? It's like courting, it's like wooing someone. They make much of you, but not for the purpose that you think. Not for a purpose which is good or commendable. They do it so that they might shut you out so that you might make much of them. Let me put this another way. You see, Paul is explaining that the false teachers were taking advantage of the Galatians. They talk to you like they really care for you. But they are false suitors who have no genuine love for you. They have no genuine care for your welfare. And not only were they filled with false praise for them, right? Doting on them, patting them on the back, stroking their egos. But Paul also explains that they were trying to literally shut them out, which means that they wanted to isolate the Galatians from all other influences, especially from the apostle himself. They want to shut you out. They want to pull you from the herd. They want to hem you in with their message, their deception, their false teaching. They want to hold you captive there. And they want to shut you out. And what was the purpose of this isolation? It was so that the Galatians would then look at who? The Galatians would look at the Judaizers instead of God himself, instead of the gospel itself, instead of the apostle himself. They were trying to shut them out, isolate them so that they would seek them. These individuals wanted to have these individuals look exclusively to them to the end that these false teachers could then keep the Galatian churches under their influence. You think about cults, that's often how they operate, right? Let me isolate you, let me hem you in, let me just inundate you with a message which is contrary to message that you once knew, which you once received. You're led astray, you're deceived, and then to whom do the individuals of a cult look to? They always look to the cult leader in some sort of kind of uh, grandiose fashion. And we could walk through cult after cult of the, to this end, right? Their only interest, the Judaizers, only interest was to entrap them in legalism and gain recognition for themselves. This is why they're flattering them. This is why they're fencing them in. Look at Galatians 6, 12. 
It's a great complimentary text, right? Chapter 6, verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these are the Judaizers, try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that you will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. These people don't even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they might, may boast in your flesh. This is why Paul follows up with verse 14, same chapter, to underscore the vast difference between he and the false teachers. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see the stark contrast between the Judaizers and Paul? Far be it from me that I would ever boast but in one thing, and that is Jesus Christ himself. The world has been crucified to me. I have no boast in this life. See, friends, it's one thing for a teacher or a preacher to Put his congregation front and center if it's for a good purpose. If Paul says if it's for a commendable purpose, right? And, and, and what is a commendable purpose? When a, when a teacher or a pastor puts his congregation before a people, if it's for the purpose of praising God, look at these trophies of grace, look at what God has wrought in the lives of individuals who've come from different places and with different stories and he's all saved them by his grace. Look at them. And it's all to Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is a commendable presentation. Paul had done this throughout his ministry, right? Incessantly. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul says, we're not trying to commend ourselves. I love that text, right? And we don't need letters of commendation. We don't. What is our letter of commendation? You are a letter of commendation. Your transformed life. Your marveling at the grace of God, you being different people with a new heart, that is our letter of commendation. Our letter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, is not, says it's not written with the ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Our letter of commendation is the work that God has wrought in you. It's not us in which our boast lies. It's in the Lord himself. And his work is evident in your lives, which is Paul's, why Paul includes in verse 18 of our text today, Galatians 4. But it is always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, right? A purpose that is good, a purpose that has as its center the glorifying of God, which was not the case for the Judaizers. Paul says it's good to make much of you when the aim is to make much of God and his work in you. That's commendable. That is what dictates this good purpose to which Paul speaks. That is what defines a commendable manner. And yet Paul knew that was not, not, not the case with the false teachers. The Judaizers did not have on their agenda the the giving of the glory of God. Or the edification of the church was not in the front and center of their minds. They had only one thing in mind the self-interest of their own hearts so that they could boast in their flesh. Hemming them in, isolating them, deceiving them with the message of law and legalism, bringing them back to slavery so that then they could look at them, prop them up and boast in them and not in a commendable way. 
We know this even anecdotally in life, right? One of the marks of a false teacher is that he tries to attract other, other men's comforts to himself, right? And instead of pointing people to the truth and the truth of God's word and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, they point those people to them. And Paul has just stated, what has, just, what has happened to that love that you once had, that you once possessed? What has happened to that blessedness that you once enjoyed, that happiness you experienced when you heard the gospel and received the message of grace, trusted in Christ? What has happened? Well, Paul knew what happened. The Judaizers is what happened. The Judaizers had come in and stolen their hearts. See, friends, a true servant of God does not use people to build himself up. No, a true servant of God ministers in love to those people, and he does so to help people do what? I want you to know Christ better. I want you to revel in the gospel that you received. I want you to know every one of its facets, every one of its implications. I want you to be transformed every single day by that message of the gospel. It has nothing to do with making much of the messenger, ever. And Paul has to call this out for what it is. These people are deceiving you, shutting you out so that you would look to them instead of to Christ and his cross and the gospel. This leads us to the last section of our text, making much of Christ requires Laboring to see Christ formed in his people. Number four, making much of Christ requires laboring to see Christ formed in his people. Verse 19, my children. What a window into the apostle's heart, right? Little children. We might read Paul's letter to the Galatians and and think that he's quite angry. (laughs) Or or that he's only interested in right doctrine or, or cares little, if anything, for people. And that's not the case. That such a conclusion would be a severe misreading of this text. Paul was deeply concerned for the Galatians. How is he concerned? He's like a concerned parent. And if you're a parent or have been a parent, you know exactly what this feels like and what this is. My children. He, he sees them in imminent danger. And if you've ever seen your own child in imminent danger, you realize what rises, you would, you, you'll, Move heaven and earth, to use the cultural phrase, right? Not that we can. To get to your child, spare them, and pluck them out of that danger. That is Paul's concern for them. His passion is driven by a love and concern for this people. It's not simply a detached veneration of doctrinal orthodoxy, right? Yes, he cares about doctrine. Yes, he's passionate about the truth. But he's equally passionate about the implication of that truth on their life, Right? Paul's heart throughout the whole of his ministry was this, right? You can turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, I was like a nursing mother to you, extending tender care for my own children. My children, Paul says. And not only the, that's not the only image that Paul employs to convey his heart and a heart that's presently exploding. Not only does he call them little children, but he says he was also in the anguish of childbirth for them. And if that's ever been your experience, you too know what that is. If you know a bit about child-rearing anguish, you can connect with this passage more than, than I can at this juncture. 
So Paul is in anguish and pain to what end? He's in anguish and in pain for one objective, to see Christ formed in them. Look at verse 19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This right here is one of the many of the vast differences between Paul and the false teachers. The false teachers isolated the Galatians for their own selfish benefits, whereas Paul pointed them to Christ. Paul labored to see Christ formed in them, exalted in them. Paul, the pastor, wants to see the whole of Christ's character wrought in them, and he's not going to rest until that takes place. See, he knew Romans 8.29. Why? Because he was led by the Spirit to write Romans 8.29, right? God has predestined believers to become, and you know the rest of the verse. God has predestined believers to be conformed to the image of his Son. I want Christ formed in you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. That's Paul's way of saying, I, I know I have more to say. I have a lot more to say, but it require, probably requires a visit in person, right? I'm just perplexed by you right now. Have you ever had your, your parent in life growing up? My mom, my mom would say, I just can't. I just can't, right? And usually I'm, about, I'm, I'm in the process of making her pull her hair out. Um, I, I just can't. I can't deal with this right now. I am perplexed by you. I need to take a breather, <laughs> Right? I am perplexed by you. I have more to say. And perhaps that requires a visit in person. If you look back to Galatians 1.6, we've seen this already, right? Galatians 1.6, I am amazed. I am literally at my wit's end that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a dis- different gospel. He could not understand how they could be, have been taught the gospel so well and believed it so genuinely, and then appeared to forsake it so quickly. He's bewildered. He's perplexed. This was devastating to Paul. These believers were being led astray. And I want to be very clear this morning. These believers had not lost their experience of salvation. They were still Christians. But they were losing their enjoyment of salvation. They were finding satisfaction in their works instead. And this was dangerous. This was fraught with all sorts of spiritual implications, stunting their spiritual growth, holding them back, and not giving God the praise and glory that he rightfully deserved. And this was a big deal to the apostle. The sad part about these believers is that they didn't realize their losses. In the, in the deception, they didn't know their, their erring ways. They didn't know them being led astray. That's what a shepherd does, doesn't he? He comes and pulls a sheep back into the fold. These individuals, because of the deception of the Judaizers, here's the irony, they actually thought they were becoming better Christians by substituting law for grace. They were believing that the religious deeds of the flesh and replacing that and leaving that are grunting to religious deeds of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit that we'll see in Galatians 5. This crushed Paul. And why did it hurt so deep? is because this is a pastor for his congregation, right? In a sense, this is a shepherd's heart. This is a spiritual father seeing his children in danger. Seeing the Galatians abandon the gospel of grace, put this relationship in jeopardy. 
It has Paul perplexed. I think if we were to spend the last three minutes and say, we want to make much of Christ, right? I want you to think about the context of North Lake Bible Church, corporately and individually. What are ways that we make much of Christ in our corporate life together? Think through that on a practical, tangible level. What are ways that we make much of Christ in our corporate life together? This is where everyone puts their head down and pretends to take notes. This is so good. Do not call me out. Yeah, we speak about his goodness and what he's done for us. We are unashamed about that. We pray for one another. Absolutely. To the end that Christ would be formed in my brother or sister, in whatever circumstance it may be, whatever is the matter of prayer. Wendell. What's that? I'm sorry. Absolutely. It affects what we do in the next few minutes. Yeah, we belt it out to the Lord. We sing. Excellent. What's that? Yeah. If someone is, is isolated, if someone heads off from the pack, we, we go and want them brought in, right? We seek them out for their good. Christ being formed in them. Yes. We give gifts and meet, and meet needs, right? Absolutely. But in a sacrificial way, just to the church and the ministry of the church or to others, to bless others who are in need. Meet tangible needs as well. What's that? Bear one another's burdens. It's very Galatians of you. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, bear one another's burdens. We'll get to that, chapter 6. Yeah, we could unpack that for weeks. What else? Yeah, okay. Yeah, our corporate life together, but even as we, outside the bounds of this corporate life, those that are not in Christ, that don't know, have not tasted of his grace. And, and you approach a lot of people, you know, I, how, how, how do you know, you know, they, they believe they're going to go to heaven. Well, how do you know? Well, I'm, I'm a good person. Well, the message of Galatians kind of really dis, dismantles that. that. That's not the message that they needed to hear to. They need to hear of a message of grace that's come to them through the work of another, not their own, right? And we're quick to extend to them that message in its purest form, its true form. I'll close with this. Someone has someone, something else? Excellent. Absolutely. Disunity, dissension, does the opposite of making much of Christ. It belittles Christ. Excellent. Thank you for that. I'll close today because... We're up on time. John Stott writes in his commentary on Galatians, he writes this. I appreciated the sentence. The church needs people who, in listening to their pastor, pastor, listen for the message of Christ, and pastors who, in laboring among the people, look for the image of Christ. I love that. The church needs to be people who, in listening to their pastor, listen for the message of Christ, and pastors who, in laboring among the people, look for the image of Christ. I want to encourage you to pray for our pastor, and then pray for our own hearts as we place ourselves under, under the word of which he spent time to prepare and study even this week. May we see the message of Christ and may Christ be formed in us in the next hour. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the message of this book and the encouragement that it is.
We thank you for your grace extended to us. Continue to root out any vestiges uh, and inclinations we have to gravitate back towards that enslavement of legalism. May everything that we do unto you in terms of of that which is, is righteous and pleasing and adhering to your will for our lives, may it be purely out of the overflow that we are a thankful people that wants to give you honor. And Lord, would you root out any, any ounce, any flavor where we are doing and attempting to do those things to try to merit your good graces try to merit right standing with you. That is taken care of in Christ, of which we say thank you. We do ask for our next hour that you would, you would be blessed, that you would be honored in our time. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.